special morning because we're opening a new series. It's actually a three-part series, and we're going to be talking about another attribute that God wants us to have, another one of his attributes, which is called to lead. We, we as men are called to lead, and, um, and that's in God's word. And for the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about three ordinary human beings. Again, at the beginning of this season, we said we tend to look at these guys like they're supernatural beings. They're sinful men, just like us, that needed a Savior, that needed Jesus Christ in their life, okay? But yet, they were, each and every one was called by God. And as we said, God qualifies the call. It's not the other way around. God doesn't only call those that we think are qualified. And this next series that we're opening up today, okay, is going to be telling us that men are called to lead. And we're going to be talking about Joshua this week, um, and we're going to be talking about Ezra, and we're going to be talking about Nehemiah. Each of those three men heard God's call to lead and answered it. And the challenge will be, are we willing to do the same? So I'm, I'm, it's my privilege today, okay, as we start this new series, to introduce our first speaker in the series, which happens to be our senior pastor, Seth McCoy, as he comes to us and talks to us about Joshua and faith will bring down walls. Pastor Seth. All right, thanks, James. All right, if you brought your copy of God's Word, you can open it up. Uh, we're going to be in Joshua. We're going to read about a whole chapter. So we're going to start, um, start uh, in Joshua chapter 5. And we're going to read through, let's see, I'm sorry, you got the, do you have the scripture verse stuff there? Yeah, verses 5, 6 through 6, 5. Um, I mean, obviously, you'll know as you go through the series, um, it's extremely difficult to try to encapsulate the ministry life of, of a whole leader that takes up, I mean, in this case, a whole book of the Bible in about 25 or so minutes. So instead of trying to give you a grand survey, what we're going to do is um, like, we're going to do more of like a soil sample. We're going to take one little square inch and try to try to drill down because I think we'll see down in that strata a lot of the layers of what it meant for Joshua um, to do what God required him to do. And that's, that is not Joshua's calling alone. Every single one of us, God has created us for a purpose. He requires something of us. Part of being a leader means you got to do what God requires you to do and then do that same thing for others. Free others up to do what God required of them. All right, hopefully that gave you enough time to turn uh, to Joshua. Uh, we'll start at 5, 6 and go through 6, 5. I'm going to ask that you stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. All right, hear these words as this is the Word of God. <clears throat> for the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. We're going to come back to that. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. 
And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals. Does that sound familiar? Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that not only do you, uh, not only did you command that the words be written down, but you orchestrated all of human history, all the little events that needed to be real so that this is not a fictional story. This is a story that you're writing through real people's lives. And I pray that for these next few minutes, Lord, would you open up our eyes and our ears so that the people and the reality of what happened here, it stands out right in front of us and it calls us to action. It requires something of us. And I pray you would do this by your ministry of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. 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 Okay, one of, the, one of the main things I try to do when I'm teaching the Bible, either at the weekend services or kind of any kind of training, um, or a situation like this, we, because we've grown up in the modern era of Hubble telescopes and, you know, um, e- email and text messaging and jet airplanes, we suffer from the great sin of modern people, which is arrogance. We, as we look back in history, we typically look down our nose, and the further back we go, the further down our nose we look. You know, our, our evolutionary theorists teach us that the first human beings were sort of hunched over almost like animals, 
And then we, we draw a line from that to where we are and think that if you look back history, you're always looking downhill. And so one of the challenges that we have as modern people is to remember, just to look at the Bible and remember, these people are not only like us, in so many ways, these people are superior to us. The Bible tells the story of the opposite of evolution. The very first human beings that lived, you know, Adam lived almost a thousand years. You think about how wise he was, right? I mean, when did you hit your peak wisdom year? You know, when was that? Yeah, about, about, you know, you thought it was at 25, and then at 55 you realize you way overshot, right? I mean, imagine hitting your peak wisdom at a time when physically you still had centuries of time to live. Imagine if you had 600 years to live with the wisdom that you had gained after 100 years of being alive. Now, you tell me, if you sat down with Adam and he was 800 years older than you, do you think that he would have struck you as wiser, smarter, stronger, just genuinely a better man. When we, when we look at the people of the Bible and we think about them, we have to remember these are not, um, these aren't sort of uncivilized, ignorant people. This is a myth that's come to us from the way that we've told our stories, and so the Bible continues to hammer away at us uh, in that way. Um, and one of the ways to do that is to make sure that we're always tracing the storyline of the Bible. So we know that Joshua, the story of Joshua and the story of Jericho is part of a bigger, broader story about God's work, giving the land that he promised to Abraham, giving it, really giving it over to the Israelites. But that land was occupied by a group of people called the Canaanites. Almost everybody has heard of the land of Canaan and the Canaanites. Um, oftentimes, if you talk to Christian people, if I say, T tell me something about the land of Canaan, what's something that oftentimes comes to mind if I say, what comes to mind when I say the land of Canaan? Yeah, fertile ground. Isn't there kind of a phrase that goes along with that? We read it. Land flow with milk and honey. And, you know, oftentimes we don't really think that out. W what does it mean that if you walked around the land of Canaan, honey was flowing? You know, we get a little picture of this. Um, in David's life, there was a time where after a battle, uh, the, um, Saul made a vow that nobody could eat. And they had been fighting and they were worn out tired. Jonathan and some of his men were going through the forest and honey was dripping from the trees. So when it says land flowing with milk and honey, that's not just a metaphor for great farming. I mean, think about, think about walking through a land that was so fertile with life that honey would drip down from the trees. How many bees does it take for honey to drip down the trees? Okay, then think about how many flowering plants and trees need to be surrounding. I mean, Jericho was a greatly civilized city in a beautiful tropical land. I mean, imagine a whole landmass that looked as tropical as Hawaii. The fruit was so big, right? The grapes were so big, they had to be carried by two guys on poles. See, when... If you, if you look at a map right now and if you think about kind of the Middle East, what kind of climate do you think about in the Middle East right now? Arid. So when you think about Joshua fighting a battle in Canaan, don't you think about like, oh, it's probably a dusty, dry, you know, they got dust all over themselves. That is not true. We can't forget when Abraham in Genesis, when Abraham and Lot looked over the land of Canaan and said, okay, you, Lot, you pick one way and I'll pick the other way. The entire territory that they looked at Abraham looked at. Scripture says it was like the Garden of Eden. It was like the land of Eden. 
It was lush, tropical, fruitful, amazingly productive. They did not lack anything. Honey was dripping from the trees. Flowering plants and trees are everywhere. Uh, enough livestock are just naturally grazing and reproducing that you could get milk in any time you wanted to. It was right there. Um, <clears throat> now the Canaanites. Um, <clears throat> sometimes we think about the Canaanites. Um, uh, we think about the Canaanites being kind of like native people from Papua New Guinea, some island that's isolated out there where they've never heard anything about Christianity, and so we think. Um, we think about the Israelite people waging war against Canaanite people who didn't really know anything about God, but that's not true. The Canaanites were tribes that all descended from Canaan, uh, and Canaan was their forefather. Who was Canaan's grandfather in the Bible? That was Noah. Noah was a righteous man, raised three sons. One of those sons had a son, Canaan. So Canaan was Noah's grandfather. Do you think there's any chance that Canaan did not know the Lord, did not know about the Lord, did not know what the Lord required? So now you have a previously Christian, right? A previously faithful nation of people who are living in a territory that's so wealthy and so fruitful and so productive that they're able to enjoy the wealth of all of that natural bounty that they've built a great city for themselves. And they, in the middle, with a, with a godly heritage and surrounded by immense amount of wealth, they are refusing to worship God. They're refusing to thank him. They're worshiping and serving other gods. Can anybody imagine a society that had faithful Christian roots that God blessed, that blessed them with incredible amounts of wealth, and right in the middle of all this wealth that God had blessed them with and with a godly heritage behind them, they started doing awful and terrible things. Sexual sin like, like Sodom. Can you imagine a culture with a godly heritage surrounded by so much wealth? And if you met them, you would find the men having sexual relations with the men or people having natural-born children and sacrificing them or exposing them to the elements. Can you imagine a culture like that? No, we can't, right? Right, and we sit in this culture right here and people will tell us all the time, founding fathers weren't Christians, they were deists. So this isn't really a Christian nation, that's a myth. That's a lie. Anybody who has access to any kind of library, 50 of the 55 founders at the Constitutional Congress were Trinitarian Orthodox Christians, right? Um, see, here's the thing. Sometimes people look at the conquest, what Joshua did in Canaan. Modern man looks at that and says, you know, I just, I don't know if I can believe the Bible or the God of the Old Testament. What about all the, the genocide that happened to those people? And that right there is a, that right there is a great satanic lie. The, the conquest in Canaan was not genocide. And one of the reasons we know this, it was not ethnic at all. It was completely moral. The angel of the Lord shows up to, to Joshua on holy ground. And Joshua says, are you for us or for them? And what's the answer? No. Why? Whose side is God on? Whose side is God on? God is on his own side. Your, our thing is never to figure out, God, are you on our side or theirs? That's thinking in the wrong direction. God doesn't get on sides. God has one side, and that side is his side. The question is never to ask, God, are you on our side or theirs? The question is always to look in the mirror and say, Seth McCoy, are you on God's side or not? That's the direction that that question always needs to go. 
Um, so when Joshua enters the land of Canaan and the Israelite army smashes the Canaanites, um, the reason why is it's moral. You know, God previously said it's not, it's, you're going to be enslaved in the land of Egypt and you're going to go 40 years through the wilderness. He made this promise to Abraham and said, because the sin of the Amalekites has not yet reached its fullness. Uh, don't you ever wake up sometimes and read the headlines and you say, Lord, how long? How long? Um, and a story like a Jericho story is a reminder that even though God's justice might be very long in coming, it comes. I could talk loud. There we go. Um, even though it may be delayed in coming, when it comes, it, it comes with great swiftness. Um, and when Joshua meets the angel of the Lord, you know, we know that this, the wicked sin of the Canaanites, the, the war is a, th is a three-pronged war. Um, scripture tells us uh, Leviticus 18.25 tells us that the land, the land revolted against the Canaanites and vomited them out of the land. So the, the war, the nature started a war against the, the land of Canaan because of their sin. Um, our, our environmental activists and, and all the things that happens when they say, boy, we're, you know, look at the lands, the land is angry with us. Um, they're not wrong, except, you know, one of the things that they are wrong about is the cause, right? Um, remember when Abel was killed? Remember when Cain killed Abel? And God said, I can, the land is crying out to me. And what made the land cry out? Innocent blood. Um, how much innocent blood, you know? Since Roe v. Wade, how much innocent blood, how much, how much does our land cry out to the Lord, you know? <clears throat> so the war against the Canaanites, the land is fighting against the Canaanites. Um, the Lord says, I'm the commander of the armies, and he's the commander of both armies. Because the Lord that Joshua met, he's the commander of the angel armies. I mean, how do you think it wasn't the trumpet that made the whole city fall flat on the ground. What, what was that? That was, the, that was the hand of God. That was the angel armies doing their damage. And that Jesus Christ who appeared to Joshua right there, the pre-incarnate Jesus, that's the angel of the Lord when he appears. That's why Joshua falls down. It's not just an angel. We're commanded it's a sin to worship angels. We're never to do that. That's why we know it's the Lord who shows up to Joshua because he says, the land is holy. Take your sandals. I'm God. Um, the angels are fighting the war. The natural order is fighting the war. And Joshua and his army are, is fighting the Lord. And the men are at the front. Right? Um, all the priests that are carrying the ark? Were there any women priests carrying the ark of the Lord? Nope. Uh, any women fighting as soldiers in battle? Nope. The, the men are leading the way in this war. 
And the war happens in a specific way because God, he does everything in a fitting way. God is a God of perfect righteousness and justice. The, the sin that the Canaanites had committed was a refusal to worship and thank God. Therefore, God's perfect justice, the city of Jericho gets destroyed by what? By worship. Joshua and his army are going to thank God and they're going to praise God. And their thanking God and praising God goes up. The angel armies love it when God is worshiped and glorified. Jesus Christ loves to receive our worship and when we glorify him. And it's through worship that the, that, that city of faithlessness is smashed down. What's going to turn things around in our country? You know? Um, a revival and a renewal of men um, who will boldly, passionately, very publicly thank, worship, and glorify God 